Hello there, welcome to the Tech Means Business Podcast. In this series of podcasts, we discuss with leading members of industry and business all things technology. It's the place, I guess, really, where technology and business come together. And there aren't really many areas of any business or organisation that aren't run, to a greater or lesser extent, by technology. Today, I'm delighted to announce that I'm in very distinguished company. I'm joined by Naveen Menon of Cisco Systems. Naveen is president of uh, the Asia-Pacific region for Cisco and also a member of the World Economic Forum. So absolutely marvellous to have such a um, a well-rounded and knowledgeable guest. Welcome, Naveen. Um, And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, who've been living perhaps in a cave for the last 30 or 40 years, Cisco is basically the company whose infrastructure um, has built the internet largely, amongst others, uh, has been around for a long time and is essentially the gold standard in all things networking and these days quite a lot more. So it only remains for me to say welcome, Naveen. And as is traditional, or has become traditional on this podcast, um, could we start, please, by asking you to give us a little potted autobiography, potted history of who you are, what you do, and how you ended up at Cisco? Okay, so I'm... uh... I'm an Indian. I was born in India, but I moved to the Netherlands when I was five. So I'm actually Dutch. Uh, spent most of my life in Holland. Grew up in the Netherlands. Went through a British education and then a Dutch uh, university education. And started my career in uh, General Electric, but then moved quickly to management consulting, where I built my basically most of my career was out of uh, AT Kearney, which is a strategy consulting firm. I worked all across Europe and North America and then moved to Asia in 2006 and then became a partner and then led the, the firm's telecoms, media and technology practice in Asia for several years and then joined Cisco only about three years ago uh, as the head of Southeast Asia. So I oversee and I run the business in Southeast Asia based out of Singapore. Also, Naveen, uh, you're being very modest here. Uh, you've joined the World Economic Forum recently. Can you give us a couple of words about that? Yeah, so I, I, I actually been working with the World Economic Forum since 2013, 2013, when I was involved in uh, two years worth of work with the forum um, on the topic of uh, personal data, privacy, data policy, data for good. Um, and topics like that. Um, both both kind of years uh, attended, uh, you know, Fed Fed doc, Fed kind of thought leadership because uh, I was a knowledge advisor to the web, and Fed kind of thought leadership into various uh, forums and discussion meetings at, uh, in Davos. Um, and through the process, have been very involved in over say seven year eight years. I've been very involved in in work around data policy. So back then in 2013, when everyone was starting to go social, starting to build up their online profile and figuring out what's going on in terms of, um, you know, new social media networks and and new data models, we were looking at how can we ensure data is, uh, you know, adequately distributed worldwide and, and there's access to data is equitable. And we were trying to figure out how to, make sure that the you know the people that need it the most could get it and that also the rights of the individual were maintained and at that time there wasn't a lot of uh, thought put behind kind of notice and consent rules so for example when you sign up to a new service now you have to read 72 pages of legal doc- legal legal uh, terminology 
you have to accept, and then only if you accept do you get the access to the service. And back in those days, we were giving up a lot of information, and we didn't even realize what we were giving up. So I actually put, did a lot of work back in those days around individual rights and personal data rights. And that's translated now into my current role where I, where I serve on the Data Policy Global Futures Council, uh, looking at the same topic of how can we ensure data and, and appropriate policy frameworks are there for data to be distributed and, and, and safeguarded uh, around the world. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I think to begin with, I'd like to talk about data policy and also on an individual basis. Um, perhaps we could start with the difference or the distinction between privacy and anonymity. Uh, to begin with, do you think those two things are often mushed together, as it were, or confused? And do you think they're separate issues that need considering? Yeah, I mean, I think they are, they are, they are different issues. Um, see, the, 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 the topic of privacy is about what is a you know which i believe is a fundamental human right so and then what cisco believes is a fundamental human 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 right you know the right to be to have a private life a private identity is a rights issue um the issue of anonymity is a choice that you make um so if you wanted to uh, be anonymous it's important to realize that that's should be allowed, you know, as part of the privacy framework, for you to be to be to be anonymous. Uh, so that's an indiv individual choice. Uh, so they are two very different issues. One is about one is about a fundamental human right. And the other one is about a choice that individuals need to make. But sometimes they get confused <laughs> with each other, which you know I can understand because they're quite complex topics. It's an interesting topic, isn't it? This idea of a, um, a right to privacy. Uh, both on the internet, digital privacy, and in and in real life as well, in in physical life. Um, do you think um, are you one of those people uh, that thinks the internet needs more regulation in order to promote the idea of privacy, or are you okay with the internet being kind of uh, one of those self-regulating bodies in that sense? Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not someone that believes that it needs more regulation, uh, but I just think that we need to constantly be looking at at regulatory frameworks and seeing if they're fit for purpose at this point in time. I certainly don't want more regulation and I don't think any anyone wants more regulation. I can't imagine we want more. What we want is to is to have every year, almost every in an ideal world, almost every, you know, instant, uh, the right to see sort of see that do these regulatory frameworks make sense and can we make can we change them? You know, these a lot of regulatory frameworks were built back in the industrial age and they haven't necessarily changed. So I think we need to look at relevance, fit for purpose, and we need to basically evolve regulatory frameworks. Isn't that part of the problem, though, that in terms of regulatory frameworks, they tend to be imposed nationally or even regionally, um, sometimes transnationally or internationally, um, for instance, in the American alliances or in the EU? Um, and is that something that the World Economic Forum is pushing towards? Um, in that you can regulate all you like in, in Singapore as a standalone or in the UK, but because the internet's an international network, applying regulatory frameworks is actually very difficult. Yeah, it is. And that, look, it's not just about the World Economic Forum. I mean, there's many institutions that are doing great work in progressing and improving regulatory frameworks. So where, I, where I think the, the World Economic Forum does a particularly good job is it engages at the CEO and at the heads of state level to 
make uh, these very influential people aware of the issues. And what I found is that once these CEOs and heads of states and heads of all the you know civil society are engaged in a dialogue, then you know you can actually get better understanding. And once there's better understanding, then that leads to more informed decision making. And once there's more informed decision making, you need regulators and public policy uh, professionals who understand the law to then put in place policies and and legal frameworks underneath it. So it's a whole ecosystem of change. You know, so so where the World Economic Forum role is important is that it, it engages at a certain level of uh, the organization, whether it a pub, whether it's a public sector organization or a private sector organization or a not for profit or a or a university, to progress the debate and and have a more informed dialogue, and that's the purpose of 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 that level. But we do need policymakers and legislators in the government and in the private sector to be in, involved in drafting and writing, uh, you know, regulation that is more fit for purpose and more practical. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think to a certain extent, this is clearly a personal opinion and not one endorsed by my employer uh, necessarily, is that um, I think the key is um, between governments and private organisations. And of course, those private organisations don't have to be businesses. They can be non-profits. They can be, I know, open source foundations. Um, if you like. And um, as, as part of your work um, with governmental initiatives in the Asia-Pacific region in which uh, Cisco and, and you are involved, um, can you tell us a little bit about that synergy between uh, governments and independent bodies around digital strategies? What's actually happening on the ground uh, that um, is being done to further those partnerships? Yeah, so so what we do is we engage. So some of those public sector institutions are our our you know very close uh, customers and partners. You know, in, in and so we we are very close to governments around the the region in, around the world, and so that gives us a very privileged position to uh, to influence and to also support their decision making uh, on matters of policy. Um, so in, in, in some cases, um, we do that directly. In others, we do that through independent third parties as well. So, for example, I also chair the, the U.S. ASEAN Business Council, which is uh, an extension of the, you know, it's, it's the foreign, foreign office of the, of the United States. Uh, and and they, are, they are providing, you know, we, we represent American interests in the region here in Southeast Asia with all the regional governments here in Southeast Asia. And so I, I actually chair the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. I represent in in Southeast Asia, and I represent the ICT community. So I I represent all the major companies in the technology sector, about 400 of them, on matters of policy with the ASEAN governments here in in Southeast Asia. So we we, there are many ways in which we can engage to drive uh, matters of or at least influence matters of policy. And you're finding a lot of corporations are getting involved in trying to make a wider societal impact. And this can only be done through partnership with, with the public sector. Is the problem, or is a problem, one of speed, uh, do you think? Again, this is uh, a personal opinion, um, but it always seems to me that legislation takes ages to pass through uh, national legislatures, uh, through the executive and all through the, the due processes. So it can take, um, let's say, two years for a piece of legislation to be provo- uh, proposed, written out, uh, presented, go through uh, the processes and eventually become law. And of course, two years 
in technology um, is a hell of a long time. So is that part of the issue, that sort of glacial speed of a governmental process? I think it's not, that's not the, I mean, I think, I don't, there's no expectation for, for from, from the corporate sector uh, to, to move, make things, make decisions quickly or to move things quickly. I mean, I think these are typically very complex problems that require, you know, multi-stakeholder kind of conversation. So, for, for example, you know, I'll just give you an example in Indonesia. Um, about 13 million people in Indonesia, and there's about 250 million people in total, don't have access to internet. Um, 12,500 remote villages. Um, a third of the Indonesians, so basically when COVID hit Indonesia, everyone, you know, the government locked down, which was the right thing to do at the time, and said everyone needs to work from home or study at home. The problem is that more than a third of Indonesian students don't have this Indonesia, don't have internet access or access to an affordable device in order to study. Uh, so there's a lot of children that basically didn't go to school and therefore are being left out of the education system. Um, you know, so how do you fix that problem? I mean, I think everyone wants to fix that problem. I can't imagine anyone, public sector, private sector, nonprofit, individual, that doesn't feel that feels like that that that's a, that's a fair thing. No one thinks that's fair. Everyone wants to fix that problem. But this is a very complex problem that requires lots of conversations and lots of discussions and lots of trials and 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 lots of you know attempts before we can get it right. But we need to keep at it and be persistent and we need to keep raising the issue and we need to find alternative ways to solve that problem um, and that's where i think the biggest challenge is is currently we we need we, we don't have a we don't have a generation i don't think we need to build a bigger generation of problem solvers you know um, so we don't need more regulation what we need is more effective regulation we need in order to be more effective we need to have more effective policies and more effective policies are actually done by problem solving what is the issue and then identifying hypotheses that can address the issue and then testing them through uh, tested you know alternative approaches and that's where i think we have the biggest problem right now is that we have to, we're failing in, in sort of the ability to experiment and try out new things now just to circle back to the issue that you mentioned there about 13 million indonesians with no internet access it strikes me that what we need to probably promote as a human right is access to information and access to the internet in the same way that we stress uh, provision of and access to education and clean water and lack of disease and you know, basic shelter um, do you feel that um, we should be giving as a human right internet access and also then uh, as an adjunct to that protection from harm on the internet absolutely <laughs> i think so i mean i you know there there's an absolute merit in what you're saying um the the challenges is in is in implementation so the challenges in the definition of harm challenges in the definition of who plays what role the challenge is in the definition of you know where does this original content exist who is holding that content and who is distributing that content it's become a very distributed kind of world and a, and a very kind of delegated world and so you know the ability to hold institutions accountable is getting less and less implementable and so that's why i think the right of the individual to be to have this right to privacy the right of the individual to go anonymous or you know is is or the choice of the individual to go anonymous 
is a is a very important um, step, is an important first step. Um, there are many cases of of internet access being given, but in exchange for other benefits, if you like, that are provided to the provider of the internet, right? Which the individual doesn't even necessarily know that they're giving up. So what does that mean? That means that there, is, there are companies out there that know more about you than you yourself. I mean, listen, this is a real issue. So there is so much data out there concentrated in so many, in a few, in a few institutions that they can essentially, if they wanted to, and if they were left uh, to their own devices, um, could essentially dictate life as we know it, or could guide life as we know it. Currently, it's in the form of enhancing preference or generating demand. But in the future, it could be down to the core of identity. Who, who, are, who am I? Who am I as an individual? Can I be reprogrammed? He did a similar talk earlier this year with, I think, the graduating class, at, I think it was Georgetown University, where he talked to the students and he said that he talked about, um, he talked about hackable animals. And at the end of the speech, it, was, it became very clear and evident that the animal was the human being and that the animal that he was referring to were, was the graduating class. And so he was posturing to the graduating class like, are you going to be that hackable animal? Or are you going to finally take control of what is your identity? I think there's a, a lot going on at the moment in the mainstream media about uh, the realisation that humans are being hacked, if you like. It's the hackable human. And it's not an immediate thing. It's not uh, have an advert flashed in front of you one day and then buy something the next day, it's, it's not as simple as that. I think it's more long-term. It's more insidious, if you will, although that word has negative connotations. But I think that if we're talking over longer periods of time, maybe five to ten years, people can and will be influenced. And I think that's something really that we are becoming aware of and perhaps are beginning to accept. Correct. And let me ask you, Joe, right? I'll give you, I'll give you uh, 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 something I want to get your answer to. Since you're, I want to ask a question to you as well. Um, do you, what would you do if uh, um, three years from now, a company, I don't know what company that is, a startup, a SaaS provider, a software as a service provider, comes to you and says, here's a device, um, you, can, you can wear it or you can implant it into your body. If you wear it for a period of a year, um, I will, and if you pay this amount of money, I guarantee to you that I will extend your life by 10 years. Oh, you'd probably say yes, absolutely. You'd probably say yes. So that, that, that's, that's the issue. So that, that, that's a very compelling value proposition. You know, you pay $1,000 maybe in a subscription per year, per, per month, let's say, over a course of a year. That's, you know, $12,000, 12,000 pounds. And they guarantee you that you could live another 10 years because they'd be collecting all your biometric data. And, and, and that biometric data would be fed into an algorithm. That algorithm would be able to tell you exactly what to eat, when to sleep, how to behave, where to go. And that would essentially enable you to live 10 more years of your life, right? Now, pretty compelling value proposition, but it poses a very ethical question. You know, how, when is it too far? So it's fine to talk about preferences. It's fine to talk about, okay, I, I think I'll get that green garden furniture. But that's what we know now. 
that is that is essentially what we know now. Even in 2013, when I started this work, um, we didn't even know that back then. We didn't realize that algorithms could do that. We didn't realize that companies or SaaS companies could do that. But we 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 thought it might be possible that we may get preference data. We may be able to create demand. At this point in time, we know that the preference data is there. We know that we can create demand through these algorithms. But there's a hypothesis that we could actually move into more areas of conflict, of ethical conflicts in the future. And this is where this is what concerns me right now. The ethics are, of course, uh, key to this. Uh, do you think it's essentially a, a question of human nature, uh, human nature writ large throughout you know, these enormous data centers the size of football fields? Um, and do you think that there's, there's something askew here? Um, obviously, we're doing a lot of things with AI, and are we using these things at the moment to um, essentially sell things or sell power, sell influence? Is it the case that technology is just so young we haven't realized its capabilities yet? Yeah, I think, I think it's... Uh, I, I like to be positive about it. I mean, I'm in the technology industry and I feel that the technology has got tremendous power to do good. So, for example, back in 2013, 2014, uh, 2014, we were we were looking at um, you know working with the uh, the three mobile operators in in Western Africa to kind of halt the pro the Ebola virus. So we looked at data, and we looked at macro data at a top level to see how you know population movements were were working, so that we could put a, put in kind of medical posts in the right place to stop um, um, people interacting with each other and then giving people a buffer period, a buffer distance so that they didn't spread the virus further than that. And that that was very difficult. I mean, we managed to get one out of the three mobile operators to provide their data. So I think there are very, very good cases of where data can be used for good. It's similarly in global warming and climate change, uh, in inclusion and in increasing education, healthcare, et cetera, many, many, space exploration. There are many fields in which data can be used well. But it goes back to my original point. And you, when you asked me about regulatory frameworks, do we, do we need more regulation? No, and I said, no, we don't need more regulation. We need more fit-for-purpose regulatory frameworks. So the regulatory frameworks we're using right now don't support um, this innovation on the one hand, but it, it doesn't also support the, the unintended consequences of bad actors that manipulate the ecosystem and do some of these bad things that we're talking about and that lead to ethical dilemmas potentially in the future. So, there, so, so whatever we do, we need to be aware that there are benefits, but there are significant consequences. And there are things that we are giving up about ourselves, about our companies, about our families, about institutions that can potentially do harm as well as good. I think that the most obvious, I guess, in terms of what you're defining as a bad actor is that um, there's a hacker, uh, it could be an organisation, maybe an organisation of hackers engaged in criminal activity, stealing intellectual property, and maybe that might even close a business down. Um, and what we're talking about here is the way that data can be misappropriated. Now, I see from your uh, biography that um, a lot of your work or some of your work is um, around advice to companies and organisations on their ongoing digitization. Do you think there's a gap between what people expect technology to deliver them and actually what the reality is, which can be um, quite a lot more threatening and unpleasant? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's always a gap. Um, 
uh, and it's it's you know there there are there are you know the companies that we work with have very strong ideas about what they want to do to support their constituencies their share, their their stakeholders their shareholders whatever it is and so we like to work with them to kind of meet those needs but what we find along the way is that you know technology can sometimes meet those needs sometimes it can't sometimes it requires fundamental process change or fundamental policy change or fundamental people change in order to implement that uh, that technology to get the right outcome that 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 institution is trying to get so i think i think the 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 gap is there but it's it's about i think it's about working with people and educating and creating more awareness about technology and what it can do for for solving you know um, the outcomes that you're looking for so there's a lot of conversations that are needed now the technology is getting so complex every day so it's uh, it's constantly changing and clearly therefore you see a role for the private sector to play in that process yeah absolutely i mean i think i think you know we are finding that you know as uh, you know the 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 knowledge economy is is growing and growing um you know corporations involved in the knowledge economy have got a very strong part to play in in shifting mindsets but also kind of ensuring adequate um learning is in place so that companies other companies or governments know about the the benefits and the risks so definitely you're finding a lot of activism and you're seeing a lot of kind of corporations i think about 178 companies uh, ceos of companies in the us signed up to in you know the concept that it's more about stakeholder capitalism than shareholder capitalism right so you're seeing this kind of shift towards especially technology companies are are, are seeing their wider their their, their in ecosystem is a lot wider than just their shareholders so definitely companies have a role to play so obviously at the moment there are no uh, physical events going on at the moment Naveen. Um, but if I were to put something in the show notes down at the bottom of this podcast as a call to action, if you could wear two hats at once, if you like, your Cisco hat and your um, consultative hat, what would you urge people to go and do next who want to read up and uh, maybe get a little bit more media about some of the issues that we've talked about today? Yeah, I would say, I mean, a few things. I would say, firstly, I would say constantly make make sure that you are reskilling yourself because you know what you're doing now will certainly be very different to what you're doing you know in, in a couple of years time or what you need to do to be relevant in a couple of years time and the best example i like to give uh, particularly when it comes to the use of data is is driving a car so i don't know if, uh, what the demographic of your audience is but you know i remember um you know my my, my dad who just recently passed away his his car, the first car that he bought when, when we moved to the Netherlands, um, it didn't have much to look at. You know, it was a great car, but it didn't have much to look at. You had a steering wheel, you had a speedometer. It didn't have a, a rev counter, but it had a radio button and it had a gas tank and it had a temperature meter to sell that the engine was overheating or not. And that was pretty much it. And the stick shift. Um, but that was pretty much it in terms of data that you got when you were driving, you know. Of course, if you hit the indicator, you'd see the light, light sort of blinking as well, which is great. Um, but if you step into a car now, it is, it's a completely different world. So if you can imagine just you know, someone back then time warping and then coming forwards into the future, if that was at all possible, and sitting in a car now, they would become a little bit lost, I think, because there's so much data coming at you. But we've gotten used to it. So I, I, I'm a big believer in, in human progress. Like I believe people can reskill themselves 
to 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 take advantage and learn about how to adopt in, uh, data into the into your everyday life. Um, just by nature of you know this change that's happened at least by this little example in the automotive sector, right? So I think you have to constantly reskill yourself. You're seeing the same with factory workers, you know, who are or far agricultural workers, which is a big part of the Asia Pacific economy. They're doing less manual work, more operator work, more responding to data um, than sort of sort of manual work that they used to do in the past. So that's a, that's a big thing. Like number one, reskill yourself. The second thing I, I would say is um, ask questions about your your providers of your technology solutions, right? Um, don't be afraid to ask simple questions. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors, I think, in 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 many technology companies around trying to over you know, make things a little bit more too complicated because maybe they don't want to answer the tough questions. I don't know. But I think you should ask questions of your technology provider. Where's my data being held? Who's who's accesses my data? Why is this service that I'm using free? How do you get paid if this service, if you're not charging me anything for it? Um, you know, uh, what can I do if I want to cancel my service? How do I cancel my service? How do I make sure that when I cancel my service, all my data comes back to me because it was my data? Or is my when I sign up to your service, do I lose do I lose my data? Is is my data becoming your data, right? Ask questions like that. I think very few people actually ask questions like that, especially of my generation. I think my kids' generation, they they're a little bit more comfortable with asking those questions because they've grown up with it. Um, and then and then the last thing I would say is, you know, I think you can, you know, you can really. You, Citizens need to basically be, be hold institutions accountable, and they need to basically make one small change every day. So if you if you do kind of ask those questions, it's it's important to kind of also responsibly choose uh, technology vendors for whatever you do, right? If if you believe that a technology vendor vendor is inherently ethical and they have taken steps to demonstrate their 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 ethics, I think we're getting into a much more nuanced world where I think, you know, there's a lot, the, you know, access to capital is cheap, access to technology solutions is low, switching costs can be very high. But if you feel that, you know, a, a, a vendor is really not ethical in terms of the way they treat you or your, or your data or your identity, then I think it's time to make a change. Um, at Cisco, I think we made a very, very strong commitment towards privacy. We have recognized that privacy is a fundamental human right. Um, we genuinely believe that, you know, it is good for business, um, but it's also, most importantly, it's good for uh, the individuals and for the customers and our customers. Um, I think that, you know, institutions and, and uh, you know, corporations need to recognize that, that this privacy is important for them, for their going concern as, as a company. Um, because I think that if you find that you know your data is compromised in what, any way, shape, or form, that could potentially put your company out of business. That has not been the case in the past, where a, a breach or a breakdown in an IT service has led to you know this kind of drastic effect. But it does that does happen nowadays. If you lose your if you lose your institution's data, or if the, your customer's data is compromised, that could be the end of your company. So. I think that you need to take action if you see that there are vendors that you're working with that are not living up to the values that they uh, that they portray. So those are the three things I would say.
Naveen, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. Um, but as you can probably tell, um, the fact that the producer is gradually bringing the music up signals, rather not very subtly in my opinion, um, that we've run out of time today. So thank you very much, Naveen Menon of Cisco Systems, for joining us today. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us too. I hope that you can join me uh, on the next issue of the Tech Means Business podcast. See you soon. Bye.